Praise the Lord. It is such a wonderful opportunity for us to get together and sing words like that. Sing together praises to our God. And i got to tell you, as I, as I reflected on what I was going to speak about this morning, throughout the week, my mind kept drifting back to a day. January 24th. That's next Sunday. Seven days from now. January 24th makes one year since I started working here with you all. And I, I, I just couldn't help but be filled with a feeling of, of, of thanks. I'm so thankful that you all have given me this opportunity to work here with you. I'm so thankful that, that the Lord has blessed me with this opportunity to be with such a wonderful, wonderful family here at Lake Street. And I'm honored, not, not just thankful, I'm honored that you have placed the confidence, uh, your confidence in me to, to be able to open God's Word, and as Logan prayed this morning, to, to just bring you the truth. And, and I just, I, I couldn't help but be filled with, with emotion this week as I thought about all that has happened in the past year of my life. And so I am so very thankful to God and, and to you all for all that has happened. And, you know, when, I, when we stop and we think of our great Father and what all He has done for us, I can't help but think of this amazing book that He has given us, this library that we have that every one of us can hold in our hands, that every one of us can, can fill our homes with and, and, and fill our hearts with. When we look at His Word and the sweet words that they are, words of life, words of hope, words of wisdom. And when I look within these pages, I see... I see things that pick me up when I'm feeling down, when I'm tired, when I'm weary, when I'm broken. Things that pick me up, that give me strength, that heal me, that give me the courage to go on. And it's in His Word that, that we see what we are to be in our lives. And so this morning, I want to ask you a question. Are we, are we truly followers of His Word? Is that something that, that describes us? In the scripture reading, we read a passage spoken by Jesus shortly before he ascended back into heaven. This passage, commonly known as the Great Commission, it, it, it is a passage that commands us to evangelize to others. But I want us to notice the wording of, of how Jesus spoke. And I think it's very important to realize and to look at words that, that anyone spoke in time, but especially words that our Lord spoke. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This should be the goal. This should be the goal of any evangelism is to make disciples. Now last Sunday we talked about how before we could look outward, before we could go out into the world, we needed to look inward. And again this Sunday I'm going to ask us to have a little bit of inward perspective. Because before we can ask someone else to be a disciple of Christ, we must first ask ourselves are we disciples? Does that describe us? Now I know that I would be I'd be fairly accurate, if not completely accurate, to say that everyone here this morning believes in Jesus. We believe in God, and, and even maybe you even attend services on a regular basis, and we that's something else we talked about last Sunday. There is a need for us to be doing that. But is that all that is involved? Is that all that is involved in being a disciple of Jesus Christ? I hope this morning to make it absolutely clear what is involved in being a true disciple of Jesus. And once we know what is involved, 
I hope that we will have the conviction in our lives that we had better get started, if we haven't already, being a disciple. Now this morning I want to start off by defining the word disciple. Disciple, in the Kyle Blevins just simple definition of the word, is a learner. A learner. Now if you want to get a little bit more in-depth than that, we have to turn to the dictionary. The dictionary says a disciple is one who is a student or a follower of a teacher, leader, or a philosophy. Now, not only does, this adds more to my definition, so not only is one is a disciple one who is a learner, they must be in the, uh, the teachings of whatever discipline they are trying to learn, but they also have to be more than just a learner, they have to also be an applicator. They have to apply the things that they learn, the teachings that they have, to their lives. They have to take the teachings of their master and they have to do them. That's why sometimes they are called imitators. Disciples and imitators are are a word that goes hand in hand oftentimes. When we consider someone who maybe has made it their goal in life to be a disciple of maybe a certain sort of fighting style. You know, that's really prevalent these days. We've got the UFC and MMA and pride and all these different things that are just opportunities for men to go in and just beat the tar out of one another. But what what they originally and still to some point do, is they display different sorts of fighting styles. They mix them together. And so we start hearing all these phrases that we probably weren't common, you know, familiar with before. Things like jiu-jitsu, and taekwondo, and, and maybe even kickboxing for some. So, so we hear all these different things that go on, and what that is, is different disciplines that people study to, to become a, a certain type of fighter. We'll take, for example, jiu-jitsu. Someone who is disciplined in jiu-jitsu could be said that they are a disciple of jiu-jitsu. And they have taken their craft, and they have, they have learned it, and they have studied it, and they have applied it to their fight, to what they were in, in, in the midst of, so that they could be known as a jiu-jitsu fighter. And we understand that, that someone who maybe is disciplined in that craft, they don't just look at pictures on a piece of paper. They don't just go to the internet and watch videos, although I'll admit, once I've seen a video, I I oftentimes feel like I'm an expert on the subject until I try to attempt it, and I find out very quickly I'm not. But but they do more than just look at these pictures and read books. They get involved. They, They practice their art. They get into groups with other people who are practicing that art, and they say, let's get stronger together. Teach me what you know. I'll teach you what I know. They find someone who truly knows everything there is to know about jujitsu, and they follow them. And the goal in, in a disciple such as that, and our goal as a disciple of Christ, should be that we want to become like the teacher. To become like the teacher. Jesus stated this in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40. Luke chapter 6 verse 40, he said, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. <clears throat> so to be Christ's disciple. We need to strive to be like Christ. That's where the, uh, the origin of the word Christian comes from. One who is like Christ. In fact, this has been God's will all along. If we look in Romans 8 and verse 29, we read, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. This is where discipleship starts. It starts with a strong desire to follow Jesus and to be like Him. We have to want it. 
We have to want to be conformed to his image and not just want to follow the crowd because it's the popular thing uh, in, in our area to do or maybe it's the popular thing in our family to do. No, it's got to be more than that. We can't just want to fit in. Many people, many people today claim discipleship because it's just that. It's something that's popular. But what happens when all of a sudden things shift and it's no longer popular anymore? How quickly... One, one who at one time said he was a disciple will very quickly change his stance on that. Now we have to want Jesus. And we have to want to be more like him. And we have to want to follow after him. And even to bear a cross for his sake. When times get tough. When times get tough, true disciples will overcome because they have been disciplining themselves in Christ's teachings. And this morning we're going to ask that question, are you doing that? Maybe we think we are. Maybe it's, it's like, well, yeah, absolutely I'm doing that. And then the next question is, can you be sure? Can you be sure that you are a true disciple? How can you be certain that anything is what it claims to be? Let's, let's look, for example, if you found a strange bug in your house. This is not too hard for me to understand because it happened not too long ago. Madden was laying down for a nap. Next thing, Madden was screaming in terror running through the house. A bug had crawled under his belly while he was asleep and woke him up. So he, was, he, he has got a, a little tiny bug crawling on him. And, and what do we do? We take a, a mental picture of that bug and then I destroy it. And then we come to Carl and say, Carl, what kind of bug was this? And Carl and, and, and Ann too, they have that ability. Maybe if you found a bug in your house, you might take a picture of it and say, can you tell me what this is? Is this something that I need to be worried about? Is this something that probably has 15 million more brothers and sisters in my, in my floorboards? Or is this just somebody looking to get out of the cold weather? <clears throat> that's, not, that, that, that's something that we can all understand. Coroners, likewise. A coroner, if there's ever a, a terrible accident on the road and, and they need to get a positive identification of a body, maybe they, they have a, a driver's license and so they will call the next of kin, they will ask them to come in, they'll say, can you tell me if this, if this is who they say it is? And, and they will say you know, either yes or, or no, that, that's, that's so-and-so or not. Or maybe a construction crew, they're doing a dig out somewhere, building a, uh, building a new high-rise, or they're do, just doing some sort of great dig and they find a really weird bone. And they look at that bone and they say, that's, that's probably something important. So what do they do? They call an expert to come and to look at it and to tell them what it is. All of these are examples of a very basic principle that every single one of us has the ability to do. And in fact, we do it on a regular basis. And that is the principle of identification. Every one of us knows how to do that. Every morning, you identify, if you are married, you identify your spouse. You wake up in bed next to her, and, and how is it that you know that some, somebody hasn't creepily slipped into bed and it's not your wife anymore or not your husband anymore? Well, it's because you know what they look like. You have studied them. You have become very familiar with them. In fact, and a lot of times, you don't even need to see them. You can tell by their voice. Or you can tell even sometimes by a more closer, like a, a scent. Or maybe sometimes... If, if they're, very, if they're very far away or something, you can still even tell by mannerisms. Things that you recognize they do all the time. Because you are one of the closest things in a way of an expert to your spouse. We understand this idea of identification. This morning I want to look at some things that identify us as disciples. Identifying marks, if you will, given by the expert himself, Jesus, as to what a true disciple looks like. The first one I want to notice is found in John chapter 8 and in verse 31. John chapter 8 
And in verse 31, we read, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Other translations say, If you abide in my word. Disciples are ones who abide or continue in Jesus' word. To be a true disciple, that means that we must understand, we must hear Jesus' word. So we must be a student, and we must diligently study the teachings of Christ. Paul would later admonish Timothy on this over in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 15. 2 Timothy 2 and in verse 15 he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of God. Excuse me, actually handling the word of truth. Excuse me. Accurately handling the word of truth. It is through time spent in God's word that we can come to know Jesus' word. We can come to know how that we might abide in that word. And without study, without taking the time to ever open it up and look at it, it would be very hard for us to do that, to accurately handle the word of truth. We do have to have a knowledge of it in some sense. But we also know that it has to be more than just a knowledge. James chapter 1 And verse 21 through 25 tells us that we are to be more than just simply hearers of the word. We need to be doers of the word also. Look over in James chapter 1. Starting in verse 21, we we read, Therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he was looked at at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Jesus himself before, before Paul ever penned these words to Timothy, Jesus was saying the same thing. In Matthew chapter 7, we'll look over at verses 21 through 27. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. Now notice in verse 24. He says, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. I think we should look at that one more time. Make sure we understand what he's saying. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. Stating that they need to go hand in hand. Not just that we hear the word, but we are also doers of the word. May be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Ever since we were little children, we probably taught ourselves the lesson of a good foundation in the song taken from these passages. We know the song, the wise man built his house upon the rock. Why is that such a good idea? Because rocks are stable. Rocks are sturdy. They are, found, they, they are good things for us to put our foundation in. But what Jesus was saying here was that the foundation that we have, 
Our foundation is the Word, but it's not alone in the Word. If we are not doers, we are weakening the rock on which we stand. If we are not doers of the Word, our foundation will crumble beneath us, and in that point, what will we have to stand on? It'll be like the sand. That when the, when the floods came, when the wind blew, our foundation crumbled beneath us and we had nothing but to fall. We have to ask ourselves, even on the day of judgment, as he talked about, where will our hope be? On what will we stand if we have not been hearers and doers of God's word? In view of this, then, I would like to point out two things. Two things that are going to go a long way in identifying a disciple. A disciple is one who abides in Jesus' word, so that therefore tells us that true disciples will not fail to study their Bible diligently. True disciples will be spending time in God's word. They will be opening it up. They will read it. They will meditate upon it. They will pray about it. They will ask for understanding. They will spend time in God's word. That is one thing that is a good mark that you are a true disciple. That is one thing that helps you to identify yourself as that. Another thing that a true disciple will do is a true disciple will choose to make time for opportunities to study with others. This morning we had a Bible class that was an excellent, excellent opportunity to study God's Word. And we got in deep in God's Word. We looked in there at things and we discussed them together and we talked about it. And I, I for one, have came, came away from that stronger. I've come away from that with a better understanding, not only of what my brothers and sisters understand, but things that I need to understand greater in God's Word. These are wonderful opportunities. Good Bible student, or excuse me, true disciples, they won't skip opportunities to be with one another to do that in church services. Services that are designed so that we can study God's Word and that we can grow together. And also our gospel meetings. These things are things that we do specifically to help us grow, to help us get a better understanding of God's Word, and to help us evangelize to the world. These are all things that a true disciple not only wants in their life, but they need in their life. And these will also help us to develop another identifier of discipleship, and that is a disciple is also one who loves the brethren. Look over in John chapter 13. John chapter 13 and verse 34. <clears throat> Here we read Jesus' Jesus's word when he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In this passage we see, we see that the love that we have for one another is a love that is patterned after the love that Jesus shows to us. As he says there, as I have loved you, you love one another. So we see that we must pattern our love after Jesus' love, and it must be a love that is visible to others. Notice that word that he said there, by this all will know. By this all will know what? They will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How did Jesus display his love for us? We stop and ask that question so that we can love one another the way He loved us. Well, how just, just how did He love for us? And there are so many passages we could turn to. There's so many things we could, we could say to describe this. We could ask ourselves the question, did He love us through sacrifice? Absolutely. Give His life for us. But even more than that, He gave up, he, he, he gave up the crown, the, the position of, a, of, of glory that He was in, 
to come down and make himself lowly as a, as a human. He gave up that, t- that ability to be with God. He gave up of his time. He gave up of his strength. And you have to stop and think about the things that he did in this life. The things that he did with us, with, with, with human beings. See that it took a great amount of suffering, not just the suffering that he put upon the, that he had upon the cross, the suffering that he dealt with each and every day, to just deal with humans, found in questions like, "How much longer will I be with you?" I mean, it, it must have been a frustrating thing, but he suffered and he sacrificed all of that to show his love for us. We also see him doing that through putting forth an effort to truly know and to care for his followers. So when we look at the displays of love that He showed us, shouldn't we, if we are to be disciples of Christ, if we are to be imitators of Christ, shouldn't we do the same thing as true disciples? Should we sacrifice our time to be with one another? Should we try and find out more about each other? Should we try to find out how we can care for one another? Of course we should. Of course we should do these things if we truly want to be disciples of our Lord. And then also John chapter 15. John 15 and verse 8, we see another, another identifying mark. In verse 8 we read, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. I want you to notice the wording that was used here. The word much. That you bear much fruit. It's the same word that's used in verse 5. When he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. We shouldn't get comfortable and, and, and comfort ourselves with the knowledge of one good deed done. Kind of like a checklist mentality. I helped an old lady across the street. That was a good deed. That's some fruit that I bore. I'm good to go. No, what we're seeing here, what Jesus talks about in this passage, is it is more than simply a checklist of, of try to do this many amount of good deeds a week. Try to do this right here and you'll be okay. It is a lifestyle. He is talking about a lifestyle that He is looking for us to live. Look in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 6. In Matthew 15 and in verse 6 we read, He is not... Matthew 5, verse 16. My dyslexia got me there. Matthew 5 and verse 16. In this passage we read, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The fruit that we must bear, the much fruit that we must bear, comes from a lifestyle that causes us to glorify God and prompts others to do so as well. We should be living a life that causes people to see God shining through us. In fact, John 15 verses 1 and through tells us that the failure to bear much fruit, the failure has consequences. It causes one to be cut off from the body of Christ. So we could ask ourselves, how can we expect to be known as a true disciple of Christ if we are not bearing fruit, bearing much fruit, and if we are in fact cut off from His body? Now, I don't know how I could say this any clearer. To be a disciple of Jesus, 
one must be more than just a, a casual church attender. That's what a lot of people have become these days. That's what a lot of people were in Jesus' day, even before the church. The church, they were just casual attenders. But Jesus was looking for more than that. He's looking for those who are committed, especially to the teachings of Jesus, especially to the love of the brethren, and in bearing much fruit. In fact, the depth of the commitment is found in Luke. Look over in Luke chapter 14. In Luke 14, starting in verse 25, we read, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. And which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he, sets, <clears throat> when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace, so that, so that none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all of his own possessions. It's a high cost. That's a high cost. That is a deep commitment to the Lord. And that leads us to see that for discipleship, there is a cost. There is something that must be paid to be a disciple of Christ. Luke 14, right here in verse 26, tells us the first thing that it must be paid, and that is Jesus must come first. He must become the priority in our life. It says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He must come first before anything else. Hold your place here in Luke because we will be right back. But look over in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10 and in verse 34. We read, do not think that I, am co- that I come to bring peace on the, on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life will for my sake, we'll find it. <clears throat> Jesus must be the first thing in our life. He must be the top priority in our life. Not our job. Not even our family. Not our kids. Not their schooling. Their sports. Our spouses. Our, our children's. Their desires. None of these things are wrong. But they have their proper place. And they all come after Christ. In fact, Luke 9, verse 23 and 25, again, just reiterates how important it is. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For For what is a man, excuse me, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses 
or forfeits himself. Even before our own well-being, even before our own life, we must place Christ in the right priority. We must put him first. And again, that's, that's one of the costs of discipleship. And it's a high cost. It's something that is hard to hear. When we look at the examples of people in that day, that was a hard thing for them to hear. It's a hard thing for us to hear today. But that is what is it, that, that is like the terms of the agreement. That is part of that cost that we must be willing to pay. Another part of that cost is that we must be willing to suffer for Christ. The very next verse in our passage in Luke, verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but there's a guy that very often walks up and down the highway here in Nicholasville. And he's got a cross. And he's carrying his cross. And it's, it's on a wheel. And he, he puts it on his shoulder, and it looks like it's made out of, out of plywood, and it's about a half inch thick. And, and it doesn't look to be the most largest amount of suffering. Now, granted, I consider walking any great distance at all suffering on my part, but, but that's not the type of suffering, that's not what Christ, uh, what Christ was talking about in these passages. When we consider the cross, it is iconically a symbol of suffering, a symbol of pain and, and of sacrifice for us. It's a symbol of love. We must be willing to endure suffering for Christ. And guess what? If you decide that you're going to be a disciple of Christ, if you decide that that is what I have set my goal in this life, to be like Christ, so I'm going to follow after Him and I'm going to do what He did and imitate Him, you're going to find that following God in a world that is increasingly ungodly, that's going to land you right in the center of many persecutions and of a lot of ridicule. In fact, that's what 2 Timothy 3 tells us in verse 12. It says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And granted, today we, we, we may be blessed that we don't have to, at least not at this moment, we don't have to go through the same sufferings that the Christians did in the first centuries. We don't have to deal with our, our lives being at risk. We're trying to, to worry if, if we are a disciple of Christ, if we are going to be barred from even buying food, from having everything we own taken away from us. But there are, are those in the world today that have to deal with that. We might not have to suffer on that level, but we will have to suffer. Maybe not even to our face. Maybe people will say things about us. They will change their relationships with us. And all these things will be done behind our backs. Or maybe we'll be spared from all of that completely we will still have to suffer, just as Jesus did, to work. To work, to toil as disciples of Christ. To be taking the message of Christ to others in a positive way. To be applying it to our lives. The, the act itself of applying Christ's teachings is work. It requires effort and toiling on our behalf. No matter what, we will have to suffer for Christ if we long to be disciples and then lastly, in Luke 30, or 14, verse 33, we see that we must forsake all. He says, so, that none of you can be, so then none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all of his own possessions. We must forsake all to follow Christ. As others have said, Jesus must become more than just our Savior. He must become more than just our Savior. He must become our Lord and our King. 
And so many of this world today have that Savior part down. They look upon Jesus as simply the, the guy that gets them into the proper relationship with God. And as all Jesus does for them, he's kind of like in some situations I've heard even described as their homeboy. Someone who is just that close friend that puts me where I need to be so that I am good with God. We're on, we're on good terms and I don't have anything else to worry about. But that's not what the scripture tells us about Jesus. It describes him as a king, as a master, as our Lord. And for him to be both Lord and Savior in our lives, we have to give up everything we have to him. That means that we give all, of it, all authority of our lives to Christ. My life. I have to give everything within it to Christ, and that is hard. And that requires trust. And that requires faith. It requires discipline. That is what's part of being a disciple. And that high cost of being a disciple of Christ, it caused many in his day to turn away. They, they looked at the cost, and they said, it's not worth it. It's not worth the things that you say it requires to be a disciple. And today, it turn, causes many to turn away as well. And it leads many to ask questions like, why? Jesus, don't you get it? If, if you would just allow people to, to maybe do what they wanted to do a little bit more, give them a little more free reign with the things that they want to do, maybe if you would allow them to wear this name of, of discipleship like a hat, they can put it on whenever they're in, in certain companies, and they can take it off when they're in front of other companies. If you would allow them just to worship Whenever they feel like it, wherever they feel like it, and however they feel like it, if you would just require them not to give their whole lives to you, but instead maybe just require them to give a couple hours, or even better yet, Lord, just require them to have just a single hour. If you just give me a single hour a week, Jesus, don't you know? Don't you understand how many followers you would get if you would just kind of lax back on this cost thing? You see, I, I believe that he does that. I believe that he knows full well what the ramifications of the cost of a discipleship are. And I believe that is why he taught so many things regarding it. Because I don't believe Jesus had just a concern for followers. He had a concern for disciples. He wasn't worried about popularity. He was worried about people who would not only follow him, but commit themselves to him. Give everything they had to him. Pay the cost to follow him. And I believe that cost is completely worth it. There is no doubt in my mind when we look at the rewards that it provides. Rewards such as the promise of future blessings. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9, we read that God's wrath will be poured out upon this world. Turn over with me to Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> in Romans 5 and verse 9, we read, we read much more than... Having now been justified as blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. We are promised to be saved from that pouring out of God's wrath. That is a future blessing. That is a promise. And that is something to certainly look forward to. But more than just being saved from His wrath, we have promised to, to receive a, a joyful eternity with Him. Look in Revelation verse 21. Chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. And start reading with me in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
The tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. And they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire, with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We have a promise that God is going to pour out a wrath upon this world. And we have a promise that there is a place prepared for those who are not found in Him. For those who are not true disciples of Jesus. But we also have a, play, a promise of a reward that we will spend eternity with God. A joyful eternity. Free from the pain and the sorrow of this world. Free from death. And these future blessings, that should be enough. That should be absolutely all that we need to look at that and say, yes, it is worth paying the cost. But he says, no, I'll give you more. He says, there is more that I will give you. Today, in this present world, I will give you blessings. In John chapter 14, if you want to turn back over to John, we read that he will give us peace. John 14 and in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. He promises peace, a peace that is something that the world cannot give to us. Christ says that He will give to us as true disciples of Him. Another blessing that He promises disciples is found in John 15 and verse 11. John 15 and verse 11, He says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. He promises, promises us a joy a joy strong enough that it will even lift us out of depression. Can pick us up and, and, and place us on a higher plane as we sometimes sing about. A joy that picks us up. But not only that, in, in verse 9 of the same chapter, go back just a little bit. He says, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. We see that he gives us love. Love strong enough that it will even dispel the fears of our life. Look over, hold your place here, and look over to John chapter, or 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, and start reading in verse 18. We read, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. The love that Jesus promises us, the love that He blesses His true disciples with, is a love that is strong enough to take the fears that we have in our lives, and to, to, to take them away, to melt them, and remove them from our lives. And then He promises us a family. In Mark chapter 10, in verse 28, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or farms. For my sake and for the gospel's sake, 
but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. He makes us a part. He has promised us to be a part of a family that is able even to replace the physical family that we have on this earth. When we look at the future blessings that He promises us and compare them with the, with the present blessings that He promises us, it goes to show that the reward far outweighs the cost. And now that we understand what a true disciple is, and we understand what the cost of being a true disciple is, and we understand what the reward of being a true disciple is, I hope that we will all truly want to be disciples of Jesus Christ. I hope that that will be our desire. But how do we begin? How do we begin? How do we take the first steps in doing that? Turn back in our passages to Matthew. Turn back to our, our scripture reading that we started all this from, Matthew 28. And beginning at verse 19, let's read together. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. According to Jesus, that first step starts with baptism, with a scriptural baptism. Because if we want to be imitators of Christ, if we want to be like Jesus, then we have to become like Him fully. That means we have to become sinless, and we have to become holy, and there is no way we can do that on our own. That leaves us in a predicament. That leaves us in a situation where we are striving for something that we can never attain. But Jesus has prepared a way. Baptism is that only way in which we read that we can become made like Christ. Acts 2 and verse 38 talks about how because of baptism our sins are washed away. We are forgiven. Romans 6. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 6. Look in Romans 6 and verse 3. <clears throat> Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. I think I may be losing my battery. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 tells us, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, who have been baptized into His death, therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 likens this baptism unto a burial where we will completely immerse ourselves. But it's so much more important it is extremely important to understand the mode in which we are baptized, that we must be completely immersed. But it is also extremely important to understand that just as a burial, we are submitting ourselves completely. We are submitting ourselves to God. We are giving up of our life. In fact, we are killing off that old man. He is dead. He is no longer. He is buried in that water. And Christ is going to bring forth the birth of a new man out of that water to a new life. So through faith in Him, who can wash us and remove the filth of our sinful, our sinful life, we are given a new life. And this is our act of faith. This is our act of, submit, of submission, and it's His work of glory, of grace, His work of mercy. We must remember that. Baptism, though, is taught as only the beginning. 
So oftentimes we, we have this attitude that once we've been baptized, we're done. We, we've been carried over into the kingdom, and now it's time to just sit back and wait for Christ to come. But if we continue on in our reading of Matthew, if we continue reading the next passage, or the next scripture, in verse 20, he goes on to say that we are to be teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching and obedience must follow baptism. We are to, ta- we are to be taught, and then we are, to be obs- we are to observe. Or you might say that we are to learn, and then we are to imitate. Or you might just boil all that down into one nice clean package that says, we are to be disciples. That's how we are to live a life devoted to Jesus. That's how we are to live a life learning His teachings and doing all that He has commanded us to do. Only those who have been scripturally baptized and only those who are displaying the identifying marks of discipleship in spite of the cost can consider themselves true disciples of Jesus. Only they can look forward to to the rewards that are awaiting them, the rewards that are promised to them now. And only they can take these last words that he reads or that are recorded in Matthew as for them. I am with you always, even to the end of of the age. Those words were were spoken to disciples. This morning I hope that you have thought about, you have considered yourself, considered your life. Am I a true disciple? Do I have the identifying marks? That's one way that we can tell. Do Do I exhibit a life that looks like discipleship? And maybe you thought you were, but this morning you realized, this morning you realized that, well, maybe I wasn't. Maybe I started on that path and for some reason... I I fell off that path, and I'm not walking down a a, a road that leads to true discipleship. Maybe whatever caused you to fall off that was a sin that's in your life, that it was a private sin, that's something that you've been dealing with. Here in just a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation and and encouragement, and I would encourage you at that time to think of those sins, to think of whatever has caused you to be held back from your life with Jesus and to repent of them, to pray to God that He help you to overcome them, that He give you the strength that you need to be a true disciple. But maybe those sins that have crept up in your life, maybe they're very public sins. Maybe they're things that you have done and it has brought a reproach upon the church. Maybe it's had uh, some sort of sin that's given people the idea that I don't want to be a part of that over there. You see what this guy right here is. He says he's a disciple. This girl over here, she says she's a disciple, but that is not what I want to be. Well, if that describes you this morning, then take this opportunity to come forward. And to let the brothers and sisters here know who love you, know that I haven't done everything that I need to do. I've done some things that I need your forgiveness for as well. And I need your prayers to help me, to help me grow stronger. Pray with me. Help me to be accountable not only to each other, but to God. Maybe this morning you looked at all this and realized I haven't even taken that first step. Maybe 